Frank Spangler, and this is Worldviews. In today's study, I would like to share one of my favorite stories from the life of Jesus. It is a favorite of mine, not because it is full of human drama. There's no miracle happening in the story. No one is healed. No one is raised from the dead. I think it is one of my favorite stories because it has helped me understand some of the biggest mysteries of life and the magnificent power of God. It also, for me, answers many of the puzzling passages of Scripture. I guess you might say that I've always been drawn to theology, to the big questions of life. And this story really deals with these things in a big way. It is a story that is filled with hope, especially for those who may be facing their own mortality or may have recently lost someone that they love in death. And as a wonderful bonus, I believe that the implications of this story might just hold the key that will help us begin to reconcile the Christian theology of a recent creation event with the evidence from science that we have of a very old earth. I hope that you will join me for this fascinating story from the life of Jesus. This story that we will look at today actually is recorded in three of the Gospels, and I will be drawing from all three accounts as I piece it together for our study today. The story begins with some Sadducees who come to Jesus with a question about the resurrection. And before we actually dive into the story, I believe that some might find it helpful to get a little background on the Sadducees. Sometimes it is good to have the backstory. The Sadducees were a sect of the Jews who lived during the time of Jesus. We would probably call them very conservative and strict in the practice of their religious beliefs. They believed that the books of Moses... Uh, what we now call the first five books of the Old Testament, were the only books that could be considered holy and inspired by God. The rest of the books may be informative, might be inspirational, like the historical books of Chronicles, Kings, and Samuel. They may have even read the wisdom literature of Solomon to get some inspiration, the hymns of David, the musings of the prophets. But for the Sadducees, their Bible was strictly the books of Moses. For them, these were the only books that held theological authority. As a result, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, And perhaps we should also spend a moment to explain the teaching of the resurrection. Uh, 
most all of the rest of the Jews living at the time of Jesus believed that those who had died having a faith in God, those who followed his ways and lived a life that honored God and his law, would one day be restored to life through a process called the resurrection of the body. How ideas change over time. Most Christians today believe that people have an immortal soul that can survive death and carry the conscious awareness of people to an afterlife reward immediately at the point of death. In the street culture of Jesus' day, people may have already started to play with the idea of people having souls because of the influence of the Greek culture and philosophers such as Plato. But the concept of people having souls was not something that was taught in the Hebrew Bible, and thus was not part of the religious or theological understanding of the day. For example, when Jesus says to Martha, after the death of her brother Lazarus, Your brother will rise again. Martha replies, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Mary and Martha were close followers of Jesus, and this statement of Martha gives us insight into the commonly held belief of the time about how people will receive life again after death. Rather than believers going directly to heaven when they die on the wings of their souls, Martha and most of the Jews of her time believed that people would only live again through the resurrection of their bodies and only at the end of time, at the last day. Because they did not believe in the idea of people having a soul living inside them, the only way that they could possibly conceive of the dead being restored to life is through the restoration of the body. In their worldview, the only possible way to live is to have a body. Jesus aligns himself with this understanding, this teaching of the Jews, when he preaches to the multitude in John chapter 6, where he gives a promise to those who develop a strong spiritual relationship with him. He says, and I will raise him up at the last day. So, That is the teaching of the resurrection. But the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. Moses had never spoken of the idea. The only real reward that Moses spoke about were what people would experience in this life. Moses talked about blessings and curses. 
if people lived a good life that followed the law, they would receive many blessings in this life, even to the third and fourth generation. If they disregarded God's law, they would be cursed in this life, even to the third and fourth generation. The incentive for following God was only that good things would happen to them in this life. There was no future heavenly reward. There was no eternal life mentioned in the first five books of the Bible. And so, because it wasn't in their Bible, the Sadducees didn't believe in an afterlife, let alone the resurrection of the body. They would point out to their fellow Jews that anyone could go into the tombs and see that the bones of their ancestors that lived long ago were still there. Clear evidence that their bodies had not been restored or resurrected. Like the skeptics of our day, they no doubt felt that it was a rather cruel teaching to give people hope that they might live again. Why spend your life dreaming of a future heaven when you should be doing everything that you can to enjoy this life, to serve God in this life? Well, that is the background to our story today. That's the back story. So, one day, the Sadducees come to Jesus with a question about the resurrection. Jesus was a teacher. It was quite common in that day for people to come to teachers with big questions to establish their position on the theological issues of the day. The Sadducees set up their question with a story about a woman who had seven husbands. She had married into a family of seven brothers, and when her first husband died, according to the custom of the time, she was taken in and married by one of her husband's brothers. But then, tragedy strikes again, and that man also dies. She's taken in by another brother who marries her, but then he dies, and so it continues until she has married all seven brothers. She must have been the courier of some horrible disease. But now comes the question to Jesus. Smiling, I am sure, they ask Jesus, you know, we were just wondering, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? since all seven were married to her. I like to think that Jesus smiled back. The story was rather amusing and did present a little puzzle. Whose wife would she be when all are resurrected on the last day? I like how Jesus responds. He only uses the Bible that the Sadducees believed in. Jesus could have appealed to the writings of Daniel or some of the other prophets to prove to the skeptical Sadducees 
that the resurrection was real and true. We might have. But Jesus uses a fascinating argument from their Bible, the books of Moses. After answering the question from the story by stating that in the new kingdom, that relationships will be different than what we have come to know here, that there really won't be marriage in the same sense that we know it today, he goes on to answer the real question on their mind and hearts. How is the idea of a resurrection of the body even possible? The whole idea seems rather incredible. The Sadducees were a little like the skeptical scientists of our day, who point out that once the body, particularly the cells of our brain, have been deprived of oxygen for about 15 minutes, they begin to die. And when they do that, there is nothing that can be done to restore them. The Sadducees would point to the bones in the tombs and ask, how would it be possible to ever put flesh back on those bones, bring the body back to life, and restore the same person with all of the memories of their life into that body? It just seemed ludicrous. Jesus told them that the reason that they were having so much trouble understanding the teaching of the resurrection was because of two things. First of all, they did not know the scriptures. And secondly, they did not know or understand the amazing power of God. And as I think about it, I believe that this may be the problem with many of us today as well. The reason why we sometimes have trouble understanding the big mysteries of life and what the Bible teaches is because we really don't know the scriptures and we really don't understand or at least don't take into account the mighty, awesome, amazing power of God. Jesus then goes on to show them how they have erred in their thinking on these two points. First of all, by going to the scriptures, their scriptures, he says to the Sadducees, Do you remember the story of the time that Moses met God at the burning bush? Did they remember it was one of the pivotal moments in the history of their nation. Of course, they knew it well. Well, Jesus continues, have you ever considered the words that God speaks from the burning bush? He says, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. The point that Jesus was making here is that the voice from the burning bush did not say, I was the God of Abraham. 
I was the God of Isaac and Jacob. Instead, the voice says, I am the God of Abraham. In the present tense. And this is where Jesus switches to the second point of error in their thinking. They did not understand the amazing, awesome power of God. He asks them, Do we serve the God of the living or the God of the dead? And then Jesus says something very amazing about the power of God. In Luke's version of the story, he says, Unto God, all are alive. I have to admit that I struggled to understand this statement of Jesus for many years. This was one of those puzzlers of Scripture for me. Unto God, all are alive. Now, to most Christians, this statement of Jesus would not pose any difficulty. Most Christians believe in what philosophers call the dual nature of man. The idea that people are composed of two parts, a body made of flesh and a completely separate soul. And that when a person is born, that spirit or soul comes into the person and then when they die, that soul leaves the body and goes to an eternal reward. One person, two parts. Some call this the dual nature of mankind, or dualism. And most Christians take this a step further and say that the spirit or soul that people have living inside their bodies is immortal, that the soul never dies. The body dies, but the soul can never die. So to most Christians, the statement of Jesus here that all are alive poses no problem, no puzzle, no mystery, nothing profound. The thing that most Christians are not aware of is that the Hebrew Bible, what we now call the Old Testament, does not teach the idea of the dual nature of man. The culture, the tradition, the worldview, the mindset of Jewish thinking at the time of Jesus was still very much what philosophers call the monistic nature of mankind, or monism. In other words, people are holistic. The mind, the body, the emotions, the consciousness, the awareness, the memories, the character, the personality of people all combine to make up one whole unit. When the body dies, everything else is lost as well. This is why the Sadducees had such a difficult time conceiving of an afterlife. This is the reason why the rest of the Jews could 
only conceive of an afterlife with the resurrection of the body. To their understanding, there was no such thing as a separate spiritual entity that could survive death and move on without the body. It was just inconceivable in their worldview at the time. I grew up in a faith tradition that also followed this Jewish thinking, this Jewish theology of monism or holism, body, mind, personality, all one unit. As I grew older and studied the question carefully for myself, I had to agree that the concept of the dual nature of mankind with an immortal soul that survives death was more likely a teaching of Plato than it was of Paul. In future lessons here at Worldviews, we will explore this question in a lot more detail. But for today, I just want to point out that when Jesus made the statement, unto God all are alive, he was not suggesting to the Sadducees that all were alive because all have immortal souls. To the mind of a Sadducee, this would be inconceivable. That would not be a good argument for the Sadducees. Clearly, this was not the point that Jesus was making for them. He was not trying to persuade them to take up the teachings of Plato over Moses. He was simply trying to point out to them that even from the writings of Moses, that Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac are seen as being alive. Because long after they are dead, the voice from the burning bush declares that I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. Present tense. The Sadducees are silenced by this argument. Luke records that other Jewish leaders who were in the crowd at the time were astonished by this teaching. Jesus had managed to give an argument from the books of Moses that the teaching of the resurrection or the afterlife was true, something that they had been trying to do for decades without success. Luke says that after that, no one dared come to Jesus with any more questions. That's how convincing this argument was. So, what was Jesus really saying here? What was his argument? What can we take from this statement? Unto God, all are alive. It must have been a little puzzling to the scribes that were listening, even though they were excited that Jesus had been able to show up the Sadducees and prove from the books of Moses that the afterlife was real, the resurrection was real, that people are seen as being alive. 
they still must have been a little puzzled because from their understanding, the resurrection only happens at the end of time, at the last day. The prophet Daniel is told to go his way, but at the end of time, he will be called and he will stand but not until the last day. How could it be that Jesus is now saying that unto God all are alive? I believe that the argument that Jesus was making here to the Sadducees goes back to his point that they erred in their thinking because they did not understand the power of God. They did not understand his nature, his presence, his ability. I would like to propose that what Jesus was saying here is that unto God all are alive simply means that from God's perspective all are alive. From his viewpoint. From his presence in our earth time, everyone is alive. We live in linear time that moves from the past to the present and into the future. And from our perspective, people die. But from God's perspective, because of his amazing power and presence that is existent in all time, no one, from his point of view, has actually died. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For to him all are alive. From his perspective, all are alive. Now, I know that this proposal requires kind of a paradigm shift in thinking, but I believe that the concept that I am proposing is actually found in many places in the Bible, not just in the story of the Sadducees. At the burning bush, God says, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob rather than I was because from God's perspective in time, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. In other words, our God is so powerful, so awesome, that it is just as easy for him to walk with Abraham today as it is for him to walk with my unborn great-grandchildren. For to him, all are alive. I believe what Jesus was teaching here is profound. Not only for the Sadducees, who had a hard time accepting that flesh could be put back on bones and a former life restored to a body long dead, but to modern science as well today that questions how such a thing could be possible. 
people who from our perspective have died are able to be saved, able to be granted eternal life, able to have their bodies healed and transformed into eternal bodies because from the perspective of our God and Creator, from His presence in all time, they are still alive. If you have recently lost someone in death, you don't need to despair that all is lost. This proposal says that our Creator our Savior exists in time where your loved one is still alive. When Jesus returns a second time, when the heavens shall be rolled back like a scroll, when time shall be no longer, all of those who have been faithful believers in the Creator will be collected from their place in time and brought with him when he comes. And then those who are still alive at the end of time will be caught up to meet them in the air for the greatest reuniting of all time. I do not believe that this proposal of the power of God's presence in all time uh, should be that much of a foreign concept. The Bible describes God as being the Almighty, the Everlasting One, the Alpha and the Omega, the Beginning and the End, the First and the Last. It declares that He is above all things. He is the Great I Am, the Always One, the Always Present One. He is the Ever-Existent One the one who was and is and ever will be. Christians often express in liturgy, poetry, and some of the greatest hymns that we sing together the awesome and mighty power of God. Theologians talk about his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence and transcendence. What this means, in more simple terms, is that he is all-powerful, all-knowing, that he has the ability to be everywhere at once, and that he exists and acts outside of the dimension of time and space that we can perceive or understand. While these are quite common and accepted themes within Christendom, Little is ever spoken or written of God's existence in all time. In other words, we often speak about how God is omnipresent, that he's everywhere at once in the universe. And yet, very little is said about how he exists in all time at once. And yet, the Bible is not silent on this concept. The very idea of Bible prophecy is based on the proposal that God knows the end from the beginning because he already exists in our future. That God is not restricted to our limitations when it comes to time 
is reflected in the biblical statements that with God, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Bible can say things like, Jesus was the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. It is how God knew Cyrus before he was born. And so if you, uh, like the Sadducees of old, like the scientists of today, have ever wondered how an event like the resurrection of a body that lived thousands of years ago could ever take place, take the word of Jesus, that from God's perspective, from his existence in all time, everyone who has ever lived on this earth are still alive in their point in time. To collect his faithful from the stream of earth time on that last day will not be a problem. For me, this proposal has not only answered the mystery of the resurrection, it has also solved most of the other puzzles of the Bible that I used to struggle with. To me, this proposal is kind of like the theological equivalent of the elusive theory of everything that scientists seek after. For me, it solves all of the problems, including how the creation week could have been a recent, literal, 24-hour day, six-day event, and we are still able to find evidence of complex life forms living on this earth as fossils in rocks that are dated by a variety of different dating techniques as being 250 million years old. To cover this idea in depth, we will have to wait for future lessons, but simply consider this as one example. Science tells us that it took two generations of star creation before the universe had any heavy elements. In other words, a star had to be born, it had to live out its life cycle, die, and then from the remnants that are cast out of that star system, a new uh, star is born, and that one had to live out its life cycle before we had heavy elements in the universe. Stars have an average lifespan of about 4.5 billion years. Knowing this to be the case, the Creator at the beginning of the creation week, I would propose, stretches time back to the required amount, about 13.8 billion years, in order to have the two generations of stars, in order to have heavy elements to work with in the establishment of our Earth. Then, as the days of creation unfold, the Creator does His magnificent work of 
transforming our rocky, dead planet into a planet that can sustain increasingly more complex forms of life. He does this during the literal creation week. But now, with our understanding that the Creator exists and can act in all time, those 13.7 billion years that he has stretched back, we may be able to see that he can do his creative actions throughout all earth time. He can create a progressive series of creatures of just the right quality of life to live in extreme environments at the beginning, but who would also slowly perform their God-given purpose to transform the earth, to make it habitable for the next series of more complex creatures. Each day of creation is one literal day, but because of God's presence everywhere in time, he is not restricted to act only within that literal day of a recent creation event. If we were to somehow be able to observe day three of creation, it may seem that the trees do suddenly pop into existence. But, I believe, if we were to chop one down, it would most likely have annual growth rings because they would be the result of God's creative acts from his presence at a previous time in earth history. I know that this is a lot to take in. I know that many people have a hard time understanding this line of reasoning, especially the first time they consider it. And that's okay. It hits different people in different ways. I have had a lot of mixed results when I have shared this proposal in the past. Some Christians that I have shared this with have said that I must watch or read too much science fiction. On the other hand, it might be interesting to note that I have, as I shared this with atheist or agnostic scientists, some of them have told me that if I was a pastor living in their community, they would start attending my church to learn more. And so it hits different people from different backgrounds in different ways. However this proposal may have struck you, I just ask that you prayerfully consider it. My greatest prayer is that this proposal can help narrow the perceived gap between the biblical account of creation and the findings of science and bring harmony to God's two great books, the book of the Bible and the book of nature. With that, I will say farewell for now. I hope to see you here again as we consider in our next lesson, Paul's Big Mystery. See you then.